Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. In June of last year, the Supreme Court decided the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, holding that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion and thereby giving to states the authority to regulate abortion. In the eight months following the Dobbs decision, the anti-abortion movement has been relentless, using multiple strategies to curtail the right and access to abortion in state legislatures and courts across the country. A federal court in Texas is currently deliberating about a case that represents a new phase in anti-abortion strategy with a unique target, the Food and Drug Administration. In November, the conservative activist group Alliance Defending Freedom filed suit on behalf of four anti-abortion medical associations and doctors. They're alleging that the FDA ignored science and harmful side effects when it approved the drug Mifepristone. This is one of the two drugs taken to induce medical abortion. The FDA approved Mifepristone back in 2000, and since then, medication abortions have become the most common method of ending pregnancy in the country. The available evidence overwhelmingly shows that medical abortions up to 10 weeks of pregnancy are both effective and safe. The Alliance Defending Freedom filed the case in a federal court in Texas. The presiding judge was appointed by former President Trump. Joining me now is Caroline Kitchener, national political reporter covering abortion at The Washington Post. Caroline, welcome back to The Takeaway. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just dig into the case a bit. Tell me about the Alliance Defending Freedom. So the Alliance Defending Freedom is a conservative advocacy group. They take on these kinds of cases on abortion, on gay rights, on just a variety of social issues. And as we've seen in this case, you know, the strategy really seems to be to target courts where, you know, they know that they're going to get a very conservative judge, a Trump appointed judge. um, And that's what's happening here. Tell me a little bit about this judge. This is Judge um, Matthew Kaczmarek. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, yeah, he was appointed by President Trump, and he he took the federal bench in 2019. And since then, he's really made a name for himself on these conservative cases. Um, he is really well known, I would say, across the country as you know somebody who. Um, is a you know is a very strict textualist you know, on the Constitution and who personally holds a lot of very conservative views. His confirmation hearing in the Senate really stood out, um, just one after the other after the other. The Democratic senators kind of confronted him with these quotes, um, statements that he had made in the past, particularly about gay marriage. He has called, um, you know, being gay a delusion. He has said that um, things like gay marriage will kind of put the country on a path to lawlessness. Now, that was all when he was an advocate. Mm -hmm. Notably, he is the first federal judge to go directly from a 
conservative religious freedom organization directly to the federal bench. So those were statements that he made in that advocacy role. Um, But, you know, understandably, when he was being confirmed, a lot of abortion rights groups, just kind of liberal advocacy groups across the board raised a lot of concerns about the things that he had said and the way that he had said them. Um, They're just quite atypical for a judge on the federal bench. I do want to, I'm always trying to sort of think about this kind of question from um, from multiple ideological or political positions. And so, you know, I wouldn't want to suggest that someone who in their work as an advocate, as particularly as an aggressive advocate in a, in a way that, you know, our sort of legal system is set up. So if one, for example, was a public defender and aggressively mm-hmm. advocated and defended on behalf of one's client, um, you know, we certainly saw how that kind of legal advocacy was used against, for example, Katanji Brown-Jackson, during her uh, Supreme Court nomination um, hearings. Help me to understand if there are aspects of his actual legal or judicial reasoning that are also likely to give pause in the case of understanding how he may uh, decide in this case. That's a great point, um, and I'm so glad you made it. I mean, his his judicial track record so far, um, it, it really keeps conservative lawyers coming back uh, to his district. So... Most recently, he made a ruling in a case about birth control. This was in December. It was a case that was brought. um, The lawyer on the case was Jonathan Mitchell, who was the architect of the Texas abortion ban that took effect in the fall of 2021. Um, And basically, this case, um, it was a Christian father who was taking issue with programs that offered low-cost or free birth control to a variety of people, but including teenagers, and basically, you know, arguing that teens should not be able to access birth control without parental consent. And in that case, Judge Kaczmarek sided with the father, and, you know, I can't can't quote the statements off the top of my head, but used some fairly forceful language saying that, you know, contraception – was a very big decision and that parents, you know, should be involved. Um, so that's just one example of a ruling that I think, you know, shocked a lot of people at this moment. And I don't know, maybe it shouldn't have, but, um, but, you know, we're, we're coming on the heels of, of that decision with this big abortion pills case. Yeah. So you said that that one of the strategies of ADF, and in this case, that's standing for Alliance Defending Freedom, is to find judges that they believe will be beneficial sort of for their case, for their argument. Um, Is that why this was filed in Texas? Because clearly Texas is a place that has pretty intense restrictions already on access to abortion. Right, right. And I I do want to start by saying that um, this practice, which is sort of widely known as either uh, forum shopping or judge shopping, it's not new. And it's not, you you know, it's it's not also unique to the conservative movement. This is also something that that liberal legal groups do. There are also judges in Texas and everywhere. But but, you know, if we're just looking at the state of Texas, there are particular judges that, you know, Planned Parenthood and Whole Woman's Health um, abortion clinics, 
you know, that those were the judges that they filed their lawsuits against abortion bills, other anti-abortion legislation with, because, you know, they know that they're much more likely to get the result that they want there. So I just I kind of want to put that out there first. But, you know, in terms of of, of why this case was filed in Texas, I, I have spoken to the Alliance Defending Freedom, and they are, you know, very steadfast on the fact that, um, you know, this was not explicitly the reason that they filed here. Um, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, which is one of the anti-abortion medical groups, the one of the plaintiffs in the case, um, you know, they say this is they, they were incorporated in Texas. Um, they have a what's called a registered agent in Amarillo, which is why it's this particular district. Um, but what's important to know is that the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine was only incorporated several months before before this case was filed. And Rolling Stone actually did some some good reporting to find that their mailing address is actually in Tennessee. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have any definitive answers there, but it, it certainly seems like, you know, the, the judge that you would get, that you know you're going to get if you file an Amarillo might have something to do with the fact that this is where this group was incorporated. We've talked a lot about the legal side. I want to go to the medical side acknowledging that you're a journalist, not a doctor, um, but you've been doing this, um, you know, pretty close reporting around this. So let's talk about the kind of two-step um, medication process and and why there was a decision to focus on this particular approval. Absolutely. So the, the standard regimen in the United States for medication abortion is a two-step regimen of both mifepristone and misoprostol. And misoprostol goes back decades, well, I guess mifepristone at this point also goes back decades, but it was originally um, for, you know, stomach ulcers and and various other things. Um, Mifepristone was approved in 2000. And I think, um, you know, probably mifepristone was the target because misoprostol is used for so many other Mm -hmm. things. But I, I, I also do, you know, think it's important for listeners to know that Around the world, there is a misoprostol-only protocol for medication abortion, and that is widely used in other countries. Now, it's just not as good. It's not as effective. It's it, it, it sort of often comes with more cramping and bleeding, and it's just kind of more difficult for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, it does it does work, and that is something that is, I mean, misoprostol is a lot cheaper and a lot easier to get. So that's why it's something that is kind of widely used around the world. So it's not like, you know, if this does happen and mifepristone is taken off the market, it's not like that's the end of medication abortion. There is this other protocol. It's just the end of the way that we do it in this country. And it would create, you know, a ton of turmoil in in abortion clinics and it would also just generally make medication abortion more difficult. Yeah, and, and more difficult even in the experience, right? It, it almost sounds right. to me like um, less like a full overturning the way that Dobbs was, that this is almost like the medical version of the uh, of the trap laws, right? Where you um, saw anti-abortion groups lobbying states and localities to add all of these unnecessary requirements to locations um, that were you know, delivering procedural abortions. Um, and and it just it just makes access harder in every way. 
That's such a great that's such a great parallel to draw. I, I mean, I think what's important for for people to know is that I think that this is sort of a, a hard concept to grasp. But here we are talking about this hugely consequential protocol change, not just in Republican led states. This is something that would affect the entire country. It would it would throw clinics in New York and California and Vermont into turmoil, um, places where abortion is, you know, protected in the law, some places in the Constitution. And, um, and I think that that's sort of a hard concept for, for, for people to grasp, because we're so, you know, especially over the past year since Dobbs, we've sort of been trained to think about this sort of two-part country when it comes to abortion. But with a potential ruling like this and with a case like this as, as part of the anti-abortion strategy, I think the thinking is just kind of how do we cause as much disruption as possible, you know, even if there is another way, even if you know people can still get surgical abortions or people can do a MISO-only protocol, how do we kind of you know throw things into as much disarray as possible? Caroline, stick with us and everybody out there stick with us. We're going to continue on this conversation when we return. We're going to dig in a bit at the state level and talk a bit about the defense of abortion rights. It's The Takeaway. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and I'm still with Caroline Kitchener, national reporter covering abortion for The Washington Post. Now, the Dobbs decision last year set off a bit of a chain reaction. In 13 states that had so-called trigger laws that were intended to automatically or swiftly ban abortion if Roe v. Wade no longer was the law of the land. One of these 13 states is Kentucky, and its trigger law would make it a felony to provide or try to provide abortion services. The state also has a separate abortion ban, making the procedure illegal after just six weeks. And these bans make no exceptions for cases of rape or incest. Abortion rights supporters, including the ACLU, sued last year to challenge the bans. They convinced circuit court judges to allow abortions to continue while the legal challenges played out. But last week, the Kentucky State Supreme Court ruled to reinstitute the ban, even while the cases are still under deliberation. Caroline, let's pick up there. I'm interested in the role of the courts here for a moment. If Dobbs and and the language of Dobbs is we are sending it back to the people and their elected representatives. But as you just reminded us, uh, the case in Texas could lead to a national ban um, on one of the key aspects of medicated abortion. And here you have a court stepping in to, um, again, institute or reinstitute a ban while um, while uh, judges are, are making a decision in the, in the broader sense. Is this what the Supreme Court meant by giving it back to the people and their elected representatives? 
I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Um, something that was really striking to me about you know the, the Kentucky case that you're talking about is that that court explicitly waited to do their oral arguments until after the ballot initiative in Kentucky in November. Um, you know, everybody knew that they were coming up on a big vote where everybody in Kentucky would have a chance to weigh in um, on whether what they wanted to happen with abortion rights. And actually in Kentucky, the ballot initiative was from the anti-abortion side, you know, explicitly, it was sort of a chance for people to say explicitly abortion is not protected in our state constitution. And it turns out people didn't want that. Um, I would say for me covering this issue on that night, that was the biggest surprise of the night. Kentucky's result, people came out and they said, no, we, we actually, you know, we, we, we support abortion rights, you know, at, at least to the extent that we don't want our constitution to explicitly say that we don't protect them. And so it was interesting to me because the court held off for that reason. They wanted to, to you know, to be able to know, you know, when they were hearing the arguments, what happened in that initiative. And still, um, you know, how many months later are we? You know, now here we are at the end of February and they ruled, um, you know, to keep that abortion ban in place. So I, I think that that was that was going to be a signal to me of, you know, I'm not a legal expert on courts, but, you know, I was interested to see whether that would make a difference, um, the result of the ballot initiative. And, you know, it, 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 it didn't. So, um so there we are. Speaking of the states, um, I live happily, joyfully in the state of North Carolina. Um, and we've covered here on The Takeaway what's potentially happening in our state legislature. Can you talk to me a little bit about Florida, about North Carolina, about Alabama, Oklahoma? What are what are we looking at here? Well, the state legislatures, you know, in January, most of them went back for the first time since Roe was overturned. And so it's kind of this big question, what are states going to do with this first opportunity? Knowing the results of the November election, knowing that voters really came out to back abortion rights. And, you know, I think as much as you can say that there's a trend, it is going after abortion rights in these states that both have Republican-led legislatures and that have become real destinations for people seeking abortions in the wake of Dobbs. And two states that really stand out there are North Carolina and Florida. North Carolina, the you know number of abortions there spiked higher. You know, there, there, there was a larger increase in the number of abortions there since Dobbs than any other state, um, or a, a larger percentage increase than any other state. Um, and then Florida, it, Florida does have the 15-week ban in place right now, but still the vast majority of abortions take place before 15 weeks. So Florida, just because of size of the state and the location of the state right there in the South and um, just how many clinics they have has also been a major destination. And so these are, I would say, if you, you had to say two states that the anti-abortion movement is most focused on, it's North Carolina and Florida. And uh, neither state um, has actually had the abortion ban introduced yet. They're, they're all kind of they're discussing exactly what they want to do, whether they want it to be a six-week ban, a 12-week ban, 
they're they're kind of just figuring that out behind the scenes. But um, I think it's you know fairly. I, I feel fairly confident that we're going to see you know a big push in both of those states. Are there any states moving to defend abortion rights? Oh, certainly. Um, you know, we we just saw um, Minnesota protect abortion rights in their state law, and you know there there are a number of states. Just I think yesterday it was like a a consortium of of twenty governors from Democrat led states coming together, saying you know we are together on this issue. We together will defend abortion rights, but it's it's really kind of a handful of states that that sort of sit in the middle here right now that that don't have a ban on all or most abortions or you know that don't have protections this fight is really taking place in these states you know many of which are cl- just geographically close to the states with bans and therefore have become access states it's mm-hmm. a real kind of tug of war for access um, in these states that have become really important access points Caroline Kitchener is a national political reporter covering abortion at The Washington Post. Caroline, as always, thanks for joining us here on The Takeaway. Thank you so much, Melissa. 